Everyone has a story, but not everyone gets to tell it. Life gets busy. We talk, we text, but do we listen? Are you looking for real stories, raw and unchanged? Want to experience life through another's eyes one story at a time? Daniel and Jenny have you covered. It's time to start the conversations, and that's the hashtag truth. Today's guests are Frank and Anna Jaworski. Frank is a nurse anesthetist, and Anna is the producer and host of the longest-running CHD podcast show, Heart to Heart with Anna. The couple has been happily married for 35 years. They have two adult sons, Joey and Alex, a daughter-in-law, Ashley, and a beautiful three-year-old granddaughter named Rowan, who is the apple of their eyes. They have three fur babies, Buck, Chloe, and Missy, and live in Texas. They love to travel, read, write, play games, cook, and garden. But after having a child born with a severe heart defect in the early 90s, Frank and Anna have spent over 25 years reaching out to support other families who are impacted by congenital heart disease. Welcome, Frank and Anna. It is so nice to have you on the show. I have to say I'm a little bit starstruck because Anna is the long-term podcast host of Heart to Heart with Anna, which is eight years now in the running. Eight years. It's hard to believe. So Awesome. awesome. You just had a reunion show. Yes. And in fact, I had so many people who wanted to be part of it that I had to do two shows which was really exciting. Awesome. There were 35 people who were able to make it to the recording. There were several people who at the last minute couldn't make it. And then I put the information out there and now I've had listeners saying, what about our show? So I'm <laughs> going to be doing a recording later this month, recording my listeners and talking to them about what it's been like to have the show to listen to. So that it's just been so humbling that so many people want to come forward and share what the podcast has meant to them. And it's not something I could have ever done alone. Frank has definitely been a big part of it since the very beginning, of course, but then all throughout, he's been so supportive, but he has seen it's a lot of work. It's been such a labor of love and to have people like you, Jenny, it's because of the podcast that I met you. And now I feel like we're heart sisters. I mean, we talk every day and our podcast experience blossomed into something so much bigger. And and so we have a baby together. We have the heart community collection together. And Jenny has been the editor of our first magazine. And it's just completely, I know you've heard (laughs) I hear all this stuff. He gets to hear everything. Heart dad. What? Put you right on the spot. We'd love to have you do a piece in the magazine. Sure. Yay. He is a great writer. Yeah, Yeah. I like to write. Yeah. It would be great to have him. He's been published in a little magazine in Waco. And it's only a matter of time before he is a science fiction published author. I know it's going to happen. We'll let you all know. Yeah. yeah. My, my son, Alex, our, our, our heart child, he and I belonged for several years to a writer's group in Austin called Slug Tribe. And they met, was it twice a month? Mm-hmm. Once a month. Twice a month. Twice a month. And uh, it was a blast to go to because there were some really good writers there. And there were a lot of mm-hmm. folks who were also struggling to learn. They were very early. And so you got to see their work develop and see the changes. And 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 working talking with other writers also just makes it feel more natural and easy to do. Yeah. So it's not so mystical and difficult. 
Right. Having that support, which is what THCC is all about. It's just having that support and knowing that you're not alone in this. You know, it's just like my podcast, my tagline at the end is you are not alone mm-hmm. because I'm, I know from having read your book, Jenny, it's so easy for us to feel isolated and alone. Even when you have a partner, even when you have parents that are there, even when you have other children, mm-hmm. still what you're going through feels so personal. And it makes you feel so alone. But as soon as you know that there's somebody else who understands, you don't even have to say anything with that person. You can just be with that person and it makes you feel consoled. That's so true. And I know you and I have talked about this before, but we had our children during an era that there really wasn't a lot of support out there. You didn't have access to podcasts in the same way. There was no online there period. No I hate to age us, but there was <laughs> yeah. no internet was to nothing. be able to yeah. <laughs> kind of look up information. I mean, it did come, but the information that you could get was limited. And um, outside of the information being limited, the technology was very different and hadn't developed where it is today as well. How was that for you guys going through your journey? Well, when the diagnosis was first given, it was something I'd never heard of before. They told us Alex had hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and I had no idea what hypoplastic meant. It seemed so alien to me. My husband was a nurse, but... Well, I was working adult cardiac ICU, Mm -hmm. and I I don't recall maybe once in the years that I worked there seeing a patient who was an an adult with a congenital heart defect, relatively rare. Sometimes they'd even be ones that were discovered during surgery. You know, they came in for another problem, had surgery, and oh, "Oh, holy cow, look at that. But uh, so for me... HOHS was just as foreign to me as she, as it was to her. We had to learn how to do it, how to understand it better together. Right. So we were given very dismal odds of Alex surviving. In fact, they told us to take him home to love him for what little time he had left, which obviously was not an option for us, but it was really hard because it was an emergency procedure. By the time he was diagnosed, he was in congestive heart failure and he was starting to really fail And we took an ambulance to San Antonio where a doctor accepted him sight unseen and then told us the night before the diagnosis, he has one of two things. We're not sure which it is yet. They were going to do a cath on him. And there was a little baby in the bed next to him because this was in the days when the ICU had all open bays and the Mm -hmm. nurse's station was in the center so they could look around at all the babies. And he said, we're really hoping that what Alex has is what this little baby has next to him. And that baby had transposition of the great vessels, which Alexander did have, but he had more than that. He also had a hypoplastic left ventricle and an ASC of VSD and a whole laundry list full of different heart defects. And in fact, the cardiologist and the surgeon couldn't really agree on what to call his condition. And so they said, well, we're just going to call it HLHS because we're going to give him the Norwood. And if he survives that, which they were very pessimistic about him surviving, then he's going to need two more surgeries and he'll end up with a Fontan heart. And so they gave us a 5% chance that he would survive. And that made me angry, Jenny. It made me so angry. And I remember saying to Frank, when we went to the elevators to go to the waiting room, that surgeon's wrong. Alexander does not have a 5% chance. He has a 50% chance. Either he is or he's not. There aren't 100 Alexanders having the same surgery on the same day 
How dare he say 5% and poor Frank <laughs> was really upset. But the one good thing, and I asked the surgeon, he gives us all this really horrible news and was not optimistic at all. And I said, so what's the good news? And he looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and I said, there has to be something good. You have to give me something good. And so <laughs> this is a Texas surgeon, right? So he's about what, six, six, two, six, one, six, two, big old lanky guy. He sits back in his chair, puts his hands behind his head, puts his legs with his cowboy boots up on the desk My. and thinks about it for a minute. <laughs> and I'm looking at him and he says, well, the good news is if he makes it to age five, he'll probably be okay. Okay. So he went off to do his thing. We went off to the waiting room. And we sat there with our family and planned a five-year-old birthday party. She started planning the five-year-old birthday party. I love that. Mm -hmm. Because that was, that was what I had to hope for. That was what I had to believe that he was going to make it to age five. If he didn't, I just didn't know where I was going to go from there. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, as far as the information, we had no time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was an emergency situation. And he survived, obviously, the first surgery. And then they were telling us, well, he's probably not going to make it to the next surgery. I guess Alex was about three months old and, and he was doing okay. So he was a month past surgery and he seemed to be doing much better. He had pinchable cheeks before that. He was emaciated. Gosh, when the surgeon said, oh, he's emaciated, that just broke my heart too. And so I said to Frank, I need to know more. And he said, okay. And so he stayed with the children and I drove the hour and a half to the Perry Castaneda library in Austin, Texas, which is where I got my master's degree. Mm -hmm. And I Xeroxed everything I could find about hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And Jenny, you know what it's like as you're copying, of course, you're scanning the pages and there was no good news. I'm in the library and tears are just running down my face. And I thought there, there has to be something good in all of this. I couldn't understand it. So after a while, I just quit reading. So nothing looked positive until I saw a book called The Heart of a Child. And I'm looking through and in the back of the book, it had all of these children that they talked about by heart condition. So I went and found all these children with HLHS and every child who had HLHS died in infancy in that book. And so it seemed like everything that I found was very negative, but I brought back all this research and then Frank and I looked at it and didn't really understand it the way we wanted to. So luckily my husband's a nurse. He went to the um, hospital library, checked out cardiology textbooks and brought them home. And the two of us started learning. And it's a teaching hospital. So they had a lot of good journal articles and stuff. They're all side full. So, so finally we started to decipher and I said, oh my gosh, if it's this hard for me and I have a master's degree and my husband was a nurse, I said, if it's this hard for us to understand it, how hard is it for these 19 year old kids we saw in the hospital having these babies? And so that's why I decided to put together my first book. 
in plain English that <laughs> anyone could understand. And then my husband became my illustrator. I didn't really have a choice. You didn't have a choice because <laughs> I can't draw. So I said, Frank, hey, I need some hearts here that anybody can understand because I'm, oh my gosh, in the textbooks, it was like, oh my goodness. I need it dumbed down, you know, make it Anna style. <laughs> so he did. And the cool thing is a lot of other artists now we've seen have renditions just very, very similar to Frank's. Mm -hmm. And your first book was called? Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents. Okay. What a mouthful, right? (laughs) (laughs) Diagnosis is a mouthful, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And here's the embarrassing thing. So all these years we thought our son had HLHS. We were told that. I wrote my book, Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents. And then two different doctors wrote medical textbooks about HLHS. And so I wrote a whole chapter for one of those books. And I wrote part of a chapter for another book. And then when Alex had his Fontaine revision, they said, oh, he's not really HLHS. He's a single ventricle kid. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute, all these times, all these years, I thought he was HLHS. So. It's just a label. It's just a label, yeah. but it makes me take it several times. You know, it's HLHS, it's single ventricle, it's unbalanced AV canal, you know, it's complex congenital heart disease, but it's all part of that compilation of just it, what these kids have go on is so complex that they can't make a label to fit it because it's all so complex and so unique to each individual kiddo. Yeah. Right. So really calling it complex or critical congenital heart defect makes so much sense. I was really happy when I saw that diagnosis. And I only saw that a few years ago that they've really started to use that more, the CCHD. And that explains anybody who needs surgery within the first year of life. Now, that day that he got diagnosed, you know, this is at a hospital that you worked at, Frank? Yeah. In fact, uh, I was uh, a manager in the emergency department at the time and I was doing a management training day and Anna had brought him in for, for uh, a well that's baby checkup. That's not when he was diagnosed exactly. But... Well, no, that, that's when the, the alert first went up about it anyways. They were kind of pushing him off saying, no, he's fine. And that day they, they brought him in, they wanted to admit him uh, for further testing. Mm-hmm. And so Anna called me and I basically called my boss and said, I can't finish today, you know, this, this training stuff. And so I went over with her and, and before we knew it, he was in the hospital overnight and they did some further testing that night and decided that he was, he had a heart defect and had to go to San Antonio. They offered us Dallas and, Dallas Houston. and Austin and Houston, but, uh, but Anna's parents lived in San Antonio and she knew there was a good hospital there. And so she asked if there was a surgeon there and there was, we decided to go there and he decided to take us, like she said, sight unseen. But it was rough because the hospital where Frank was is the biggest hospital, not just in our city, but in our entire area. It's mm-hmm. a, the biggest trauma center. Sure. And so it's kind of like the go-to hospital. And so I took him to his two-month well baby checkup, right? Here I've been force feeding him, going through all this stuff, but I've been told over and over, he's fine. It's all in my head. And so finally I told the doctor as she was finishing her examination that Alex had finally woken me up making noise, but it wasn't crying. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, this morning he woke me up making like a grunting sound. And she said, grunting. And I said, I don't know any other word to use to describe it. All of a sudden she takes all his clothes off all over again. She's listening all over again. And then she says, okay, we're admitting him. 
And I said, wait a minute, you've been telling me for two months, he's okay. And she said, well, I, I think there's something wrong. And I said, yeah, well, I've been saying that. What, what do you think is wrong? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, you can't admit him if you don't know what's wrong. And I kept pushing her. She really did not want to commit to what it was. So finally, she said, well, I think he has cystic fibrosis. And we were really, really lucky because a nurse, Vicki, do you know? Vicki Controlla. Yeah, yeah. Vicki Controlla came in. She was a night nurse. She came in at change of shift. And I was holding Alex and I was patting his back. And his head was going back and forth like this, which it had been doing for months. That was a sign that Frank kept saying something's wrong. He's breathing too hard. And mm -hmm. so she watched him breathing and she said, does he always breathe like that? And I said, well, it's getting worse. I mean, you could look at him. You could see a cleft in his chest. He was breathing so hard. And she said, well, what did the x-ray say? And I said, there's he's done blood tests, they've done urine sample, they've done all kinds of stuff, but there was no x-ray. And so a resident came in, like Frank said, this is a teaching hospital. And she said to the resident, this baby has a heart or a lung problem. Where's the x-ray? And he said, oh no, you know, we're doing a cystic fibrosis test. We don't need an x-ray. And Vicki was very professional. She took the resident out of the room and two minutes later, came back in the room and Alex was going to have an x-ray. She <laughs> <laughs> saved my son's life. I found out later that if he had gone through that stress test that they have to for cystic fibrosis, with him being in congestive heart failure, he probably would have died. Wow. We had a, you know, it's funny when I listen to your story because our, our stories, and we've talked about that before, are very similar, but we had a, a similar sort of person at the hospital. It was an x-ray technician who advocated for there's something wrong with this x-ray. There's something going on here with this kiddo's heart. And he pushed and he advocated and wasn't heard right away, but was indeed correct. And when they did eventually hear him out, you know, that, that worked, but it makes me think about, you know, and hearing your story as well, you know, you've said like, here, here you are, you're, you're a special education teacher. You have a master's degree. Here you are. You're a nurse. You know, you know all about medical things. And it's hard sometimes to get your voice heard as a parent, but a parent knows. A parent knows their child. I'm making an assumption here, but that must make you one heck of a nurse, Frank, because you've been on the other <laughs> side. Of that. Well, I, um, I, I have, I've learned a lot from being on this side of it. And uh, I know a lot more now than I did before, obviously. And now I wouldn't miss anything like that with a kid. But the time I was working as an adult ICU nurse, since then I've been to graduate school to become a nurse anesthetist. And so I give anesthesia and I have a lot more training on top of that and uh, a lot more experience now. So yeah, it makes me a lot more um, sympathetic to the to the parents and a lot more. Uh, I'm more interested in listening to them also. And when Alex was in for a second surgery, our plan for managing time with Alex was that we would all go to San Antonio together, be there for the day of surgery. And then after that, Anna would have day shift 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the hospital. And I would go home and do stuff with, with Joey and, mm -hmm. and, and sleep or whatever else. And in the mornings, I would go uh, in the evening, excuse me, I'd go into the hospital. We'd have like a change of shift. We'd meet in the cafeteria. We'd all have dinner together. And she'd go home with Joey. And I'd stay in the hospital with Alex overnight. Mm -hmm. And so I was there every night when the lab work came in, you know, in the middle of early in the morning and x-ray and that kind of stuff. And uh, John Calhoun, who was Alex's surgeon, talked to me every day because he knew that I, I knew what was going on in terms of the lab values and things. And yeah. he would discuss things with me. And one morning he came in like at four o'clock in the morning and said, Hey, I have a bunch of medical students. I'm going to talk to you about 
about heart defects and I want you to come along to the lecture. And I said, why? And he said, because I want them to see what the parents think also. Mm-hmm. That's what he did. He was talking about, you know, he was mm-hmm. talking to them about paying attention to the parents because even if the pa- parents don't have any medical training, nobody has more interest in their children than they do. And they may see things that you don't and you should listen to them, not necessarily spend all your time with them, but listen to them to, to the point of if they say, hey, I'm concerned about this thing, you should pay attention to that. Awesome. And, uh, and so it, it was it was great. It, it was it was very interesting. And um, I'm obviously much more sympathetic now. And uh, I've, I've talked to patients who are adults with congenital heart defects and I'm ones that I've taken care of, uh, like electrophysiology. Lab. We do a lot of I do a lot of pacemakers and ablations for kids and stuff. Yeah, I do the anesthesia for that. And when I talk to these people, I'll say, look, uh, I haven't had a power effect myself, but I know what it's like because my son has one. I can discuss it with them. And they they seem to trust me more because of that. And that's a good thing, too. You know, you have to identify with your patients the best you can and, and let them know that you care about them and not just another, another number. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, yeah. Being on both sides of it does make a difference. I always think about like what comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, and, you know, and I listen to your backgrounds and your journey and what you're doing now, and you both already were in a helping profession. And I can't help but think, gosh, that probably really prepared you for having a journey like this to walk through. But then even after having gone through this journey, you both continue on that path to help others. And I think that's, that just says a lot about who you are and the goodness and everything that you do. You know, I, um, that's true for me personally, uh, working in cardiac ICU, adult cardiac ICU at the time, we did not have a children's hospital in our town. Children were taken care of at the same hospital and pediatric ICU was 50 feet down the hallway from where I worked. And I would get pulled over there sometimes to help out with patients. And so I had seen patients die in pediatric ICU. I saw how hard it was for the nurses and the families who worked there. And it's one thing for somebody to say your child might die. It's something else to have actually seen that happen before. And so it was, it was extra scary, I think, in some ways for me. And it, whereas I had seen hundreds of patients post-heart surgery, adults in the ICU with tubes and wires and that kind of stuff. And to me, it was no big deal. When I saw my son that way, it really struck me. It really, really hurt. Yeah. So it, yeah, there's an advantage, but also there can be a, um, a more vulnerability, I think. Well, and Frank hasn't told the whole story because... He had to t- he told his boss that he had to go upstairs to be with me because I had Joey still with me and somebody had to take care of Joey. And one of the x-ray techs pulled Frank aside or, or the radiologist pulled Frank aside after Alex's x-ray and told Frank that Alex probably wouldn't make the transport. Mm-hmm. And Frank knew what that meant. Or like he just said, he's been in a hospital setting. He has seen things. I didn't know. And Frank decided not to tell me. And I'm really thankful he didn't because they let me ride in the ambulance with Alex. And I just thought that all babies were transported with doctors and nurses and the whole staff. I had no idea. And so I was holding a breathing tube near his face because they wanted oxygen to be, because his saturation levels were so low. And I had no idea they didn't run with lights and sirens, which is a good thing, I guess, because probably my heart would have been beating out of my chest and it was my very first time on an ambulance. And I had no idea how bad it was until we arrived in San Antonio. And all of a sudden I was pushed out of the way and numbers were exchanged and they're saying all different 
things back and forth that I had no clue what they were talking about, that they had been observing while I was just talking to my baby. Which makes sense. I mm-hmm. mean, because, you know, for two months, you're saying, gosh, there's something wrong with my baby. And they're saying, no, it's just this or try this. Use a cold washcloth, you know, feed him this way. And then you go in and they're like, well, maybe he has cystic fibrosis, um, you know, or maybe there's something wrong with his heart. but nobody thinks it's going to go from zero to a hundred, the maybe from that jaunt of there's nothing wrong to maybe there's something wrong. One would never expect it to be, Oh, and you're critically ill, you know, and if we don't do something, it's, it it means you might die, you know? Yeah. I was so ignorant when they told us after they did the x-ray and they saw that his heart was swollen it went from the center of his chest all the way over to the other side. So it was so congested. And they said, okay, well, we can't deal with that here. Like Frank said, there was no children's hospital in our town at that time. There is now, but there wasn't then. And so we want to send him to Austin, Houston, or Dallas. Where do you want to go? And I said, San Antonio, <laughs> which you'll notice was not in the list. But I had gotten my master's in San Antonio or worked on my master's there. And I knew there was a huge medical complex there. And I just felt certain that there was somebody there. And Jenny, I feel like that was a God thing. Because after Alex was finally diagnosed, had his catheterization and everything, we found out that the only surgeon in the state of Texas doing the Norwood at that time was Dr. Calhoun. So had we gone to Dallas, which was much further north, or to Austin or to Houston, they would have had to life flight him to Mm -hmm. San Antonio anyway. So I I really do feel it was a God thing that the way that it happened. And uh, we just feel so blessed. And I think that's why it's so important to us to get back. Mm -hmm. Our baby could have been taken so many different times. And we were spared that. And so why wouldn't we want to give back and help others? I mean, we've, we've just been so blessed. It would be selfish of us to do anything else. 